Human beings are basically social animals. We get our sense of reality by talking to each other, by interacting socially. To deprive people of social connection, which is what happens extremely in solitary confinement in prison, and to a much lesser degree in shelter in place, it creates a situation that is not hospitable to human beings. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Dr. Terry Coopers is a psychiatrist with a background in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, forensics, as well as social and community psychiatry. He is a professor at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, as well as a consultant to various mental health centers, social rehabilitation programs, and to the international NGO Human Rights Watch. His forensic psychiatry experience includes testimony in several large class action litigations concerning jail and prison conditions, sexual abuse, and the quality of mental health services inside correctional facilities. Today's interview with Dr. Coopers is by no means meant to compare what we are all currently experiencing in quarantine with the extreme conditions that one experiences inside a correctional facility, let alone within solitary confinement. However, this interview is meant to serve to give us all a bit of perspective and to use such extreme circumstances and Dr. Cooper's fascinating work to help us better understand a bit more about the human condition and perhaps a new lens with which to understand ourselves, each other, and the world. Terry, thanks so much for joining us in this time of what people had been referring to as, as social distancing, but now are referring to more frequently as physical distancing. So to begin, I'd just love you to give our listeners a bit of, of background on, on the work you do 
And a couple of the more universal lessons it's taught you about who we are as humans. Well, first of all, it's very good to be here with you. I'm a psychiatrist and I do general psychiatry. I have a practice. I've recently retired from my office practice. I work in hospitals. I do community mental health. As one aspect of my work, I serve as an expert witness, often in class action lawsuits. That is, all of the prisoners in a jail or a jail system or a prison or a prison system sue because of a violation of their rights, either the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment, uh, which is supposed to be prohibited, or the Americans with Disability Act, because there's a huge proportion of prisoners with serious mental illness. So they're entitled to disability treatment. And I testify as an expert. In doing so, I tour the prisons. And lately, the last 15, 20 years, that has focused on solitary confinement in prison. The reason for that is that solitary confinement has been used widely in the United States in jails and prisons, and it causes a great amount of psychiatric damage. So I go into solitary confinement units, I interview a large number of prisoners, and I assess the damage and come and tell the court about it. And then the court decides whether there's an Eighth Amendment violation. As part of that work, I publish uh, reports on my work. I have to keep prisoners anonymous. I can't violate the confidentiality or the privilege connected with a lawsuit. So I make the cases anonymous, but I report on my cases. And I've written several books, the last being Solitary, which the subtitle is the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it by the University of California Press. And there I summarize a lot of my experience and my conclusions from that experience. And what would you say some of the biggest conclusions, perhaps some of the more obvious, but one of the more surprising ones might be from that book and that compilation of your work? Well, the turn in this country towards solitary confinement in jails and prisons occurred in the late 1980s. What was going on was there was a tremendous amount of violence in the prisons, and they were basically out of control. There were hunger strikes, there were riots. So I and a number of experts in this field said to the powers that be, you know, you, you've really made a mistake crowding the prisons. The first issue was crowding. We had quadrupled the prison population in very few years in the 1980s. And it, a lot of that was because of the war on drugs. And we suggested that the sentencing reform occur so that we could downsize the prisons and then they would be manageable. At the same time, rehabilitation was being cut all of the education programs and vocational training programs were being uh, dismantled. So you had a whole lot of idle prisoners crowded together. And the result was a lot of violence, a lot of mental breakdown, and a lot of suicide. And so we recommended you should uncrowd the prisons by doing sentencing reform, and you should reinstate the rehabilitation programs. Well, correctional authorities did not listen to us. They said they had another idea, which was that the violence was due to some bad prisoners, what they called the worst of the worst or the super predators. 
and they were going to lock them down even further inside prison. And that was the advent of the Supermax prison, which was a whole prison or a cell block dedicated to solitary confinement. So you have rows upon rows of prisoners in single cells behind metal doors often, and very little activity in the common spaces in these prisons. The hallways are practically empty. The yards actually are little areas, not much bigger than a cell, where the prisoner is supposed to do recreation by themselves. And sure enough, people in those circumstances started to fall apart, and the damage was obvious. When I first started touring these places, I found some of the worst cases of psychosis and depression I had ever seen in my entire career. And even if people did not have a serious mental illness, and a lot of people did not become mentally ill, but they were damaged in less obvious ways. Anxiety was pervasive, very severe anxiety, panic attacks, etc. Difficulty thinking, the thinking process was distorted and often it meant paranoia. And then there was trouble concentrating. There were big memory problems. So that a lot of prisoners in solitary confinement around the country told me that they've stopped reading. And I would say, why do you stop reading? It seems to me if you're in a cell by yourself, it's the only thing you can do. And they would say, yes, but I forget what I read the page before and it just becomes chaotic. Despair versus very widespread. People became depressed. Suicide occurred incredibly often. The suicide rate in prison is approximately twice what it is in the community at large. But 50% of successful suicides in American prisons occur among the three or five or seven percent of the prisoners who are in solitary confinement at any given time. So suicide is a very, very big problem. I think there's a causal relationship and that creates a mental health crisis in our prisons, which goes on to this day. So in all these ways, all the prisoners in solitary confinement are damaged. People who have a mental illness, for instance, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depressive disorder, their mental illness is exacerbated. And that's what I mean when I say I saw some of the worst cases of serious mental illness that I'd seen in my entire clinical career. Yeah, and I actually wanted to ask you, when you go in and talk to these people who are under such extreme amounts of stress, I think most of us can only very lightly, theoretically imagine what it's like, but I'd love for you to kind of paint a picture of what it's like talking to somebody there. Because on one hand, you know, I wonder if they try and cover up their feelings or play tough, how much they reveal to you, how raw and authentically you're able to really get a perspective on, on where they're at and their struggle. Well, that's a very good question. Typically, I get a very clear picture of what happens for them, both their daily routine, their immediate experience, and their thoughts about the whole process. I am an expert for their attorney. In other words, the prisoners as a class are suing in most cases. I do other kinds of cases too, but in the large cases, it's a class action lawsuit about all of the prisoners. They tend to be very intelligent. I think that there's a selective process by which very intelligent prisoners are overrepresented in solitary confinement. 
Mm. And I think that's because the staff, particularly the correction officers, are intimidated by them. They're so intelligent. So a staff member will criticize them for breaking a rule and they'll say, I know that rule and it says such and such and my action was not a violation. The next mm. thing that happens, the officer hits them and throws them in solitary confinement. It isn't about they're breaking the rule because they're often correct that they haven't broken a rule and the officer is wrong about that. Rather, it's about intimidating the officer with their intelligence. In any case, a lot of people in solitary confinement are very intelligent. They're often self-taught because they dropped out of high school before winding up in prison. And they've read a whole lot of, of material and they can have very intelligent discussions with me. So first of all, they trust me because I'm working for their lawyer or they know of my work. A lot of prisoners have read my books. And so when I come to see them, they say, well, I like what you're writing and here's what it's like for me. So there's a kind of trust and honesty develops. And I think I do get a true picture. In contrast to the prison psychiatrist, in prison, there's a lot of stigma about having emotional problems or having a mental illness or being suicidal. So prisoners on average clam up. They do not talk to the health and mental health staff. They don't trust them. They think that if they tell something to mental health staff, the officers will learn about it and they don't want that to happen. Or other prisoners will see that they're getting mental health treatment and then they'll be stigmatized. Often they'll be victimized, beaten, raped, etc. So they tend to hold everything close. And then when I come in, it's like a relief because they understand the confidentiality of our interaction and they also know which side I'm on in the lawsuit that they're involved in. So there's an immediate trust. So I get a pretty good picture of what's going on inside. Mm -hmm. And could you just, I think, to exemplify it or humanize it a bit, maybe just describe one case or a moment or a quote from someone that impacted you in one of your hundreds, if not thousands of interactions with prisoners over the years? Well, I've had well over a thousand interviews with prisoners. And I'll give you an example. First of all, prisons are a window into our race dynamics in this country. And almost 50% of prisoners are African-American and another 20 to 30% are Latinx. So there's a great racial disproportion. People of color are overrepresented in prison. And there are complicated reasons for that. At every step along the way in the criminal justice process, there's discrimination by race. So that black Americans are more likely stopped by the police and frisked. When they're stopped, they're more likely arrested, whereas a white counterpart might be released to home, um, you know, their own recognizance at home a black individual is going to be taken to jail. In court, they're going to get a more severe sentence. And then in prison, a greater proportion of them are going to end up in solitary confinement. So I met a black man who was about 40, had been in solitary for ooh, nine or 10 years. Wow. And this was in a Western maximum security prison. And I asked him, what happened? How did he get here? And he said, well, I broke a rule. I, had, I admitted I broke a rule. I was someplace I wasn't supposed to be. And they punished me with a term in solitary. I said, what, what was that term? They, he said, six months. 
And I said, well, this is nine or 10 years later. Why are you still in solitary? He said, I don't think I'm ever going to get out of here. Now, this is a very stable, intelligent man. He is not seriously mentally ill. And he said, I don't think I'm ever going to get out of here. And I said, why not? And he said, when you're in solitary, your anger builds up. And it's irrational. You don't know why your anger is building up. Of course, you're angry that they put you in a hole, you know, a cell by yourself. But that's a certain episode and you get over that. Instead, in solitary, you keep getting angrier and angrier. And then one day it has to happen. You try very hard not to get in the, the wrong way with a guard. But one day you just get angry at them. You blow up and then they write you a ticket. And the result of the ticket is a longer term in solitary. So that's happened to me over and over again. I admit I can't control my anger in here. It just mounts and I don't know what to do about it. Now, I should mention that maybe 70, 80 percent of the prisoners in solitary that I've interviewed have told me that exact thing about mounting anger. It's a symptom of solitary confinement. But instead of treating it as a symptom, as part of the damage that solitary does, what the criminal justice system does, especially officers in prisons, is they punish people for getting angry, so they give them a longer term. So here's this man who's in solitary for nine or 10 years, hasn't really done much wrong. He hasn't been involved in any kind of violence. He hasn't made any serious rule violations, and yet he is stuck in solitary, he thinks, for the rest of his life. And because of that, he despairs and becomes very depressed. You mentioned in the beginning that he was an intelligent and sane man. And I just first want to acknowledge that I think there would be a 0% chance I would be any semblance of sane after one year, let alone a decade. And so really gluing into the, the, the resilience, but also not just the fact of having been there for so long that I think could drive someone to some point of insanity, but that feeling of the unknown, of being trapped there and not knowing how long it'll last. And I think, obviously, again, on an extremely small scale, you know, we have no idea when the quarantine is going to end, when this physical distancing will will end. And I think that unknown is what gives people a lot of anxiety. But just trying to imagine that exacerbated on an unimaginably large scale. Well, I think that's all very important. I want to make a distinction first that solitary and confinement in prison is a whole other magnitude of damage psychologically. The prisoner has absolutely no control over his life. Things are being done to him or her, and a solitary is sort of the worst of it, Or although a lot of prisoners die because they're beaten to death by officers and such. And it's often because they stand up for themselves. In prison, you're supposed to be compliant. And the officers demand total control over the prisoners. If a prisoner talks back to an officer, I gave the example of the prisoner being correct about what's in the rule book and defending themselves and saying, I didn't break a rule. The rule is such and such. I did such and such. Mm -hmm. And using logic, the officer is very likely to beat them. And 
the beatings can get pretty vicious, particularly if, if an, a prisoner does let his anger get the best of him and he attacks an officer, mm. a whole bunch of officers are going to swarm in and really beat him. And I've seen a lot of people die in that kind of situation. So the extremity is just a whole other order of magnitude in the prison, which we're not experiencing out here. Yes, it's true. Um, sheltering in place is a form of isolation, and it has a lot of negative effects, potentially. Also, there are a lot of ways we can counter those negative effects, and in a lot of ways we can learn from prisoners in doing that. But we should not equate uh, sheltering in place with solitary confinement in prison. The prisoner has absolutely no options. Their solitary confinement requires them to be almost entirely idle. Many don't have any television or radio. Some don't even have writing material. They get no exercise because the exercise yard is just another space about the size of their cell and there's no exercise equipment. So it's an entirely different experience. I've described it as the decimation of life skills. That is, when you spend a long time in a cell by yourself with really no meaningful communication with anyone, the correction authorities say, well, the officers communicate with the prisoners. That's really not true. The officers bring a food tray and pass it through a slot in the door, but they don't really have any meaningful communication with the prisoners. So the prisoner is totally isolated, almost totally idle. Now, that said, and recognizing the qualitative difference and the degree of deprivation difference between sheltering in place and solitary confinement, there are similarities. And you've mentioned several already. One of the things I think it's worth noting, and Dr. Craig Haney has described this in an op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle recently, is that prisoners work out ways to survive their isolation. And we could look at what they do and learn something. I'll give you an example. I mentioned that a very widespread symptom in solitary confinement in prison is a inability to concentrate and a memory problem. I have met a lot of prisoners who tell me that's absolutely true, that happens to them. Their memory is shot and they can't concentrate, but they continue to read. And what they do is they take notes, either in the margin of a book or on paper, as a guide to them when they read a little further and they want to look back and gather what they've already read so they can make sense of the current page they're reading. That is a wonderful tactic. It's, it's a kind of work habit. It's a discipline that we would like people in school to learn, for instance. So the prisoners who are successful at doing intellectual work, and some of them very courageously, they go to the law library or in, in solitary, the books are brought to them, they can't go out of their cell, but they study law and they work as a jailhouse lawyer, what's called pro se, and they file lawsuits complaining about one or another constitutional violation. That is incredible, given that they're in solitary, they have no one to talk to, they probably came into prison without ever graduating high school, and they're writing legal briefs, which are very valid, and often they win their cases. So that's an amazing accomplishment against great odds. Now, when we look at sheltering in place, 
with the community at large, we can learn something from that. I think in order to do well during this current crisis, people have to be disciplined. The usual markers of our daily life are gone. We don't have to get to work at nine in the morning. We don't have our workmates to relate to around cooperative tasks. We don't have specific work assignments on average. And therefore, we have to create a structure for ourselves which gives meaning to our lives, but also marks the daily rhythm. That is, we start working on some project at some point. We finish it by, say, the evening. We switch from work to recreation, and we do it in some kind of ordered way. All of those steps are helpful while we shelter in place. Because if we don't organize our day, what happens is a kind of disorientation. I don't know what day this is because I'm not doing my usual activities. And I don't even know what time of day it is. So I get disoriented Mm -hmm. as to time and place even. Mm -hmm. Well, the prisoner in solitary confinement works out ways to do that. Many have intricate calendars. They keep a chart of as the days go by, they know the date because... Often there's no clock and there's no calendar allowed in the solitary confinement. So they have to create their own calendar. We've seen it in cartoons where a prisoner is is doing Roman numerals on the wall to count the days that they're in prison. Mm -hmm. And prisoners do things like that, and they do it to maintain their sanity. I think all of us need to maintain some kind of schedule, even when we're sheltering in place so that we know the difference between morning and afternoon, and we know how the days go by. It's often difficult to notice that it's the weekend, since all the days have become the same and we're not seeing anybody in person. And I think it's important to keep a record of that, either in our mind or write it down, so that we have a sense of orientation and what our schedule is. And that's a help getting through the sheltering in place. And in terms of, it's interesting because the expression goes, time flies when you're having fun. But in some of the the reading I've done, and I can't cite any specific studies off the top of my head, but that it actually goes a bit differently than that. And if you don't have this sense of time, if we spend a lot of days doing the same thing, or if we don't have, you know, when you're busy, when you're having fun, when you're doing a lot of things, when you look back, time might fly faster in the present moment. But when you look back, you have these landmarks, you know, okay, this happened that weekend, the following weekend, I remember I went on this trip or to this birthday party or this hike. And you have all these different landmarks that in a way, retroactively looking back, expand time. Versus if you look back and all the days are the same and you don't have these landmarks, it kind of compresses time in a way where it feels as though it has passed much more quickly and it's much more difficult to know how much time has passed, what you've done, let alone, you know, remember the details. That's absolutely correct. And uh, philosophers uh, uh, note the difference between time and duration. Time is what we see on the clock or on a calendar. Duration is our subjective experience of the time. In psychiatry, we are very concerned about orientation. 
when we do a mental status examination of a patient, we want to know how is their orientation? Do they know what day it is? Do they know what time it is, etc. And orientation is a matter of memory. The way that we're oriented, for instance, I know that it's morning now because I remember eating breakfast and I don't remember eating lunch yet. Mm -hmm. So I can say, oh, it must be the middle of the morning approximately. Our orientation as to place and time depends on our memory, just as you described, of past events. When the past events get blurred together, which is what happens in sheltering in place or in solitary confinement in the prison, there's a disorientation that results. And the most successful prisoners, and I think the most successful of us out in the community sheltering in place, have some actual mechanism, some method for continuing to be oriented. And the more we do that, the healthier we feel. Creativity and, and discipline. Yeah. And you have to really work out alternative ways to keep a focus when your usual mechanisms for knowing where you are and what time it is are not available. I'm wondering when you mentioned that some prisoners died due to such severe physical abuse. And I'm wondering, one, if there are charges that are pressed, but as a very dark question, do you think that some of them would see that as a better option than living possibly the rest of their life in solitary confinement? Well, I think that's a very good question. Suicide by cop is what it's called in the vernacular. And that is some people, and I think it's relatively rare, but some people will get themselves into some kind of altercation with the police and it can be the correction officer in prison and thinking that this is going to get me killed and that's a good way to commit suicide. As a very rare phenomena, more often the suicide is just about despair, just about a sense that there's nothing in the future for me, I'm never going to get out of here and there's nothing I can do to change my situation. All of that are sort of the elements of despair. When we treat depressed people in psychiatry, part of the depression is seeking isolation. So the depressed person stays in their room or buries themselves in their bed or won't come out of the house. They isolate themselves. It's a symptom of the depression. And what we do in treatment in psychiatry is we try to counter the tendency towards isolation. For instance, on a hospital ward, if the depressed patient wants to stay in their room and keep the light off and be in the dark all day, we go and gently encourage them to come out of their room and join the ward activities, to either watch television with the other patients or join the group therapy that's going on. And the reason is because we have to counter the isolation in order to treat the depression. Human beings are basically social animals. We get our sense of reality by talking to each other, by interacting socially. To deprive people of social connection, which is what happens extremely in solitary confinement in prison, and to a much lesser degree in shelter in place, it creates a situation that is not hospitable to human beings. So just like in treatment, we try to counter the tendency of the depressed patient to isolate themselves. In the sheltering in place, 
We want to encourage all social activity. You, you mentioned social distancing versus physical distancing. And it's really physical distancing because we don't need to be socially distant. We have ways on the outside in the community to maintain our social connection with others. And I think people need reminders that it's important to do so. So for instance, watching television, which is a passive activity, but you find out what's going on in the world or telephone and Zoom encounters. Zoom encounters are very popular among those who have a computer. Keeps you in touch with other people. And that's one of the ways that sheltering in place is just qualitatively different than solitary confinement in prison. The person in solitary doesn't have those options and is drastically isolated. But while sheltering in place, those of us out in the community don't need to be isolated. The ways to connect with other people can be somewhat artificial. A Zoom conference is not the same as a in-person interaction. But it's better than nothing, and it keeps us socially connected. Mm -hmm. So that's very important. That's what's missing in prison, and that's why so many suicides occur among people in solitary confinement. In some of the other interviews we've done, some of our guests have, have talked about any trauma from earlier in life, or in the case of PTSD, or in general, how connection is the strongest healing mechanism. And so when we did an interview about addiction and there were countries such as Portugal who implemented rather than directly drug related rehabilitation programs, they created programs that gave people connection and a sense of purpose. So whether it was connection to other people in terms of community building or connection to a purpose or an existence outside of their current experience in helping them start a business or do meaningful work. And so really just reiterating that human need for connection and also the need for connection as a healing mechanism and the power of that. And so some of the other lessons that we could maybe learn about the human condition that I've picked up on are kind of you mentioning this need of, of agency. And I loved how a lot of your research mentions intimate relationships and how that is one of the biggest things lacking and one of the biggest problems, the lack of versus presence of intimate connections, intimate relationships in our lives can be this game-changing mechanism and what that tells us about who we are as humans. Well, I think you've outlined this important topic very well. In psychiatry and psychology, we talk about two key concepts in all of our theories about how people work. One is attachment and the other is trauma, and they're interrelated. Attachment is the ways that we typically and repeatedly relate to other human beings. And it starts with the mother-infant and parent-child relationship. Is it a good relationship? One of the elements of a good relationship is mutuality, caring, empathy, that kind of thing. And that creates an attachment pattern where both parties to the attachment have agency. 
That is, the child can initiate various things with the parent. For instance, the baby can cry when the baby is hungry or has a wet diaper, and the mother responds. That starts to build in the infant a sense that my actions cause effects in the world, particularly in the world of object relations, and I can get mom to notice my needs and take care of me. That's the beginning of agency. Trauma happens all along the way. That is, there are things that happen to us that are large, that are maybe life-threatening, that are cause severe emotional reactions. And in those traumatic events, we don't have agency. They happen to us. Think about rape, for instance, or child abuse, sexual abuse of children. The victim and eventual survivor of the trauma has no say about it happening. It's happening in direct contravention of their wishes and their actions, and it's happening to them. So when we do therapy with someone who has been traumatized, we try to set up a situation where the person who survived the trauma will have more agency. So they have, as you were saying, both the social connection and in those social connections, they have a certain amount of agency. And we have this theory in the mental health professions that working on those two issues eventually helps people resolve traumas. And what we're looking for is not just to get back to a previous way of being, but actually to grow from the awful experience. So we talk about a trauma being an opportunity to change and become someone larger. So that's the background in the psychiatric literature about treatment. Now, when you go take that into the prison situation, the prisoner in solitary confinement has no social connection. They're socially isolated. They also have no agency or very little agency. Their agency is greatly hampered because they don't control anything in their life. They can't make plans. They can't really envision a future. And they have lost a sense of agency while also being isolated. The double loss then causes a great amount of psychological damage. Moving from that extreme situation to the shelter in place, I think the issues are the same. That is, we want to encourage social connection and meaningful social connection, and social connection where there's mutual agency, where both parties to a relationship have something to say about what's going to happen. The more we can develop that, the healthier people are going to be as they go through the crisis. And then thinking about the future, the more possible it becomes to make what could have been a massive trauma, this period of sheltering in place, and it is a massive trauma, for instance, to prisoners who are facing coronavirus. I mean, they, they're thinking, I'm going to die in here mm. because the walls are set. Mm -hmm. They can't expand the walls. We've got crowding in here. We can't do any social distancing. Mm. I'm going to catch the virus. The medical treatment program is already oversubscribed. Mm. I'm not going to get the treatment I need, and I'm going to die. And that's basically the average sentiment of prisoners in this country today. And there are efforts to release as many prisoners as possible from the jails and prisons. For instance, people who are awaiting trial, and the only reason they're in jail is because they can't afford bail. 
they should be released immediately. So we reduced the population of the jails and prisons, and there are efforts to do that around the country. But the prisoner is facing a situation where, particularly if they're in solitary confinement, they're isolated and they have absolutely no agency. What we want to do out in the community is increase the social connectedness by any means necessary and also increase agency so that while we've lost the choice to go out to a restaurant or a movie, we can't do that. We're being told we can't do a whole large number of things. Meanwhile, we need to find new things where we do have some agency and can control our life and therefore think about a better future. Out here in the community, different people are experiencing shelter in place and social distancing in different ways. For some people, for instance, those who are affluent enough to have savings and be able to sit out a period of shelter in place without bringing in income, they will survive just fine and they have the wherewithal to do social networking. They're gonna do much better than people who are living paycheck to paycheck, for instance, in the hotel and restaurant industry, and have suddenly become unemployed with no real means of support. The other very dark development in this context is domestic violence. Domestic violence is rising, and it has to do with the dynamic that you implied. That is, for instance, take a couple who had tenuous mutuality That is, there's an average of peace, but every once in a while there's an outbreak of domestic violence in usual life. Now these two people are forced to stay within the walls of their home 24 hours a day, day after day. And what happens is a higher incidence of domestic violence or domination. Domination typically occurs because somebody, the dominator, has been dominated in the past and abused, and then they take it out on someone today who they have power over. That's typically the way it works. Well, if you put two people in a house together and say they have to stay there, and the prevalence of domestic violence goes up, it must be the case that the person is feeling insecure or inadequate and then takes it out on a partner over whom they have some kind of power. So that's on the rise, and it's a very disturbing aspect of the shelter in place. I'd love to go back a bit and dive into how this plays a huge role in even people ending up in prison in the first place to really on a much larger scale understand the impact of situation and how a lot of these people who later end up in prison have gone through great amounts of oppression, great amounts of isolation, great amounts of stress, perhaps as early as they can remember in childhood, didn't have those loving relationships, didn't have that cultivation of their own identity and purpose Trauma is one of the most pervasive background factors in the prison system. That is, prisoners as a group are probably the most traumatized group of people that I know of. Prisoners have had a history of physical and sexual abuse as children, of domestic violence as adults, of a crime on the street where they've been victimized. So there's a tremendous amount of trauma in the background of prisoners. 
they go into prison and they are dominated by the staff. That is, they're not permitted any kind of agency. They're told they have to follow the rules. They'll be punished harshly if they don't follow the rules. And essentially, prison becomes a new trauma, which re-traumatizes the person who's already had a lot of traumas in their life. But I think this is kind of a perfect point at which to dive into the concept of attribution and the attribution error, how you can either attribute an outcome, event, or consequence to an individual or to the situation they are in. Here's what an attribution error is. I mentioned that practically 50% of prisoners in the United States are African-Americans. What is the cause of that? In other words, to what do we attribute the high prevalence of African-Americans in jail and prison? One way to think about it is there's something inherent in African-American people that makes them prone to break laws. The conservative political view includes that proposition. It's called racism. There's something about African-Americans that makes them prone to violence or crime. Now, another explanation is there's something in our society, for instance, structural racism, which puts African-Americans at a disadvantage in our criminal justice system. So the reason that we have practically 50% of prisoners being African-American is not that there's something, some quality in African-American people that makes them prone to crime. Rather, there's something very biased and discriminate in our entire social system, but particularly the criminal justice system, which lands people of color behind bars. And indeed there is. If we watch the way that the police operate, where they concentrate their stop and frisk, and the way they treat people, they treat African-Americans, particularly low-income African-Americans, much more harshly, as will the courts, and the African-American people are going to get harsher sentences, and then in prison they're going to have a harder time and more likely end up in solitary confinement. It's not because of the difference in their attributes, it's because of racism in our system. I mean, the prison system grew out of slavery, and it continues to be the focus of racist sensibility in our society. So the attribution error is to attribute the high prevalence of African-Americans in prison to qualities within the individual African-American people who are in prison versus attributed to a social process, racism, which selectively arrests, tries, convicts, and gives a long sentence to people of color. And depending on how you see that, you do different things to alleviate the problem. If the problem is racism, for instance, President Obama was working very hard to adjust sentencing. There was a discrepancy between people who were convicted of having crack cocaine versus people who were convicted of having powder cocaine. The chemical is the same. That is usually a larger proportion of white middle-class people use powder cocaine and get arrested for that. And low-income and people of color are more likely to use crack cocaine. And then the sentences for crack cocaine were disproportionately long. 
So there is a causality for so many people of color being in prison. And we, during the Obama administration, passed laws that would somehow ameliorate that discrepancy. And there was an attempt to pardon some of the African-American prisoners who had been given too lengthy a sentence because of the possession or dealing of crack cocaine. Um, President Trump, of course, reversed that process, and there's no longer an attempt to correct that inequity. The last point is about trauma and prison. As I said, prisoners as a group are among the most traumatized in our society. In the past, they go to prison and there are a whole series of traumas that happen. Starting in a men's prison, man walks on the yard and he starts getting a proposition for sex by older, tougher prisoners and has to fight in order to defend his honor. Well, that's a new trauma. And then the, indiv the individual is in a crowded facility where there's no uh, room to do exercise or to take part in programs. And then they're put into solitary confinement. And solitary confinement is a whole new level of trauma. So they're re-traumatized on every level. And that's really what's wrong with our criminal justice system. And it makes it no accident that the recidivism rate is high. And once someone goes to prison, most people go to prison when they're young, when they're teenagers or in their early 20s, usually for not a very serious crime. And they only have a year or two or three years to do. But what happens to them in prison is so traumatic mm. that they're basically damaged and unable when they get out to succeed at going straight. And that's what begins their career of criminality. So we're actually fostering criminality by the awful things we do to people in prison. Mm -hmm. And we have to reverse that. I just wanted to re-acknowledge the fact that 50% of people in these, and I don't know if it's different for, for male and female prisons, but are African-American, and was it another 20% are Latino or Native American? I would say 25, 30. Yeah. Native American is interesting because they're a very small percentage of the prison population. However, there's a disproportionate percentage of the Native American population mm -hmm. that is in yeah. prison. Yeah. So while they're a small percentage of the prisoners, it's a huge yeah. percentage of that community. Yeah. So to acknowledge something between, you know, 70 to 80 percent being people of, of color in these systems and the amazing point you made with the example of the difference in sentencing for cocaine versus crack cocaine, which I didn't know and is extremely frustrating. Um, yes. But just the, the fact that if we look at this in an extremely objective way and we say, okay, one, we acknowledge that these are people who have already lived through so much trauma, and that's part of the reason, if not all of the reason, that they end up in these systems. But then we put people into this place where they undergo escalating extreme cases of trauma, and the goal is to release them with the expectation that they will be rehabilitated rather, you know, and in your work reading up on this, it mentions a lot how some places or a lot of prisoners within certain systems don't have access to, you know, self-development programs or educational programs. So 
really putting people into this system, depriving them of any tools or resources to help them rehabilitate, putting them through escalatingly extreme trauma, and then expecting them to somehow without any agency or control of their time and activities, rehabilitate themselves. Prison is a window into what's wrong in our society. The first thing that's wrong in our society is a massive gap between the rich and the poor, which is growing larger. And poor people are even more greatly disadvantaged. And you see that today in the coronavirus epidemic. Lower income people are taking the brunt of the pain of this crisis. So for more affluent people, it might mean that a vacation has to be canceled because the amount of reserve income is less. But for a low income person, it means they can't eat or they're going to be homeless or they can't feed their children, which is about one of the most painful things that can happen to human beings. And it's just tragic what's happening to people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder through this crisis. The criminal justice system is not working. It's broken. It basically serves to disappear problems from our society. Consider public mental health, for instance. As a society, we are not doing our part to help the most disadvantaged among us. And we have been cutting the budget for public mental health successively and incrementally for 40 or 50 years, ever since the Community Mental Health Center Act of the early 1960s that President Kennedy signed, where there was money for federal community mental health centers. Since that time, if you follow the budgets, they've been relatively dismantled. They've been progressively shrunk so that there's no real treatment available for people with serious mental illness if they don't have a lot of money. And that population has wound up in prison. That's no accident. What's happened, I believe, is that we have a society where we, the average person, thinks we're a democracy, we're kind, we're gentle, we take care of, of people if they can't take care of themselves. That isn't true. That is not what our society is. Our society is a place of huge inequity, racism and sexism and other problems. But we don't want to hear that. We don't want to see those problems. So we have a large number of people with serious mental illness who are homeless and they're in our face. And we look at them, and we think they are really miserable and we're doing, not doing anything to help them. Well, we'd like them to disappear. We'd like to not have to look at them. So we put them behind bars. And that's what I mean, we disappear the problems behind bars. Our public education system is not working. The discrepancy between what happens to a middle-class child and what happens to a low-income child, particularly in the inner city, is just massive. The public schools are not working. They're failing the low-income children. We don't want to hear about that. We certainly do not want to pay higher taxes to have a better public education system. So that inequity would not be as great. What we do, and I'm not saying people consciously do this, they did this has all kinds of indirect mechanisms. But what happens is we lock up a lot of the people who were failed by our education system. If you interview, and I've interviewed thousands of prisoners, as you said earlier, most of them dropped out of high school for one reason or another. 
And usually it's because the schools they're in really could not manage to give them an education. It wasn't because the kids were bad kids. It's that the schools didn't work for them. The classrooms were too big. The teacher was too impatient. And they didn't do well in school. Well, we don't want to face the fact that our public education system is failing. So they end up in prison. We say good riddance. The way we say that is lock them up and throw away the key. But the truth is that we need to look at the way the inequities in our society have resulted in terrible education for the lower income kids, racism throughout the system so that people of color are disproportionately put behind bars, non-treatment for people with serious mental illness. All of these things are social responsibilities. We should be doing everything we can to build a meaningful public education system instead of dismantling it as we've been doing. And we should build a public mental health system And then there wouldn't be people with mental illness behind bars. One of the the biggest parallels that came up in my head as we've been talking about this attribution actually is a parallel between prostitution and prison. And in actually another one of our guests, Benjamin Nolo, he does some amazing documentary films about rape culture in the U.S., also some about human trafficking. And I think people often think about prostitution and human trafficking as that sort of modern day slavery that people were forced into. And then on the other side, people who have agency and make the choice to become what people refer to as sex workers, as if it were a choice. But their research shows that in the United States, women who have quote unquote, chosen to become sex workers, 95% of them had gone through previous abuse. And I believe it was even specifically sexual abuse. Uh, But in any case, probably a variety of different extreme forms of abuse. And so we really need to question, you know, is that a choice when somebody is, is put through all of those experiences they did not choose. And, you know, they only see one path as a result of having no agency. And so they can't actually be making what we understand and refer to as a choice without that agency. And so again, examining how people's upbringing the connections or lack thereof that they had with other people, how that shaped for in this case, what we're talking about, men ending up in in prison or people in general ending up in prison and really acknowledging how strongly those early experiences shape us and how limiting they become. And it's almost as if there, there is no other path and it should be no surprise that under those circumstances, you know, this happens and it being a a systemic issue. And so when we just kind of to close out the attribution error and to kind of really simplify it for, for a more everyday example, to really remind people how much we are unconsciously attributing outcomes to what we see as choices versus 
circumstances, you know, people were forced into or experiences they had in which they didn't have agency and really forcing ourselves to, to question our perspectives much more often and to question the way we think and talk about these themes. And also to question, you know, how much we attribute our own behavior or choices to to things that are inherent in us versus the circumstances and in our relationships whether it's you know our boss at work and attributing things to his or her character versus the stress they may be under at home or as a result of this pandemic or with their family we never know what experiences people have been through and so we really need to try and remember to more frequently not only question ourselves but question other people in the sense of asking them questions and and getting to know their story and the things that have shaped them and what their intentions actually are and what they actually are feeling because otherwise there is no way to know well you've touched on a bunch of very important themes i totally agree Attribution error is another way to describe what Hegel called the master-slave dialectic. And certainly this applies with sex workers, with women in prison, a certain proportion of whom are arrested for sex working. And when you talk to them, you do find a huge amount of trauma, including sexual abuse and domestic violence, in their background. When we look at that, one way to look at it in terms of social attribution would be what are the opportunities for these women who tend to be low-income women who, who don't have a lot of a chance to succeed in the everyday job world. And we don't want to look at that, so we blame these women for having some kind of moral turpitude or something like that. What Hegel said was that there are two groups, the masters and the slaves in society, and he meant this in a abstract way, symbolic in terms of our relationships with other people. Some of us are masters, some of us are slaves in different contexts. And he said there's a difference in the knowledge of the master and the slave. The master wants to believe that the way things are is natural and the way things should be, their being in a position of master has to do with their merit and their good work and their accomplishments. And they don't want us to know anything that contradicts that kind of perception of reality. The slave lacks education, but is trying to figure out what's going on. And in terms of eventually really understanding our society, the master is hopeless because the master is so set on defending the worldview that justifies the master status. The slave merely has to gain an education and gain some power in society in order to be able to see how it really works. So the future belongs to the slave who is going to be able to perceive reality once we adjust for the inequity that led to their not having an education. That's Hegel's master-slave dialectic, and that's very true today. And what we have, the criminal justice system is an example. People don't want to know what's going on in prison, and they certainly don't want to do anything about it. So right now we have a major, major crisis where I think a whole lot of people are going to die in jail and prison from coronavirus. And it's a reflection of the inequities of our society, of the racism in our society. Disproportionately, there are people of color who are going to die in jail and prison.
we don't want to see it. We don't want to look at that. We don't want to put the necessary resources into alleviating that problem. And therefore, we want to just deny that it's going on or say it's their own damn fault. They're bad people, they're heinous criminals, and we don't care about them. That keeps us from having to challenge just how equitable and how free of racism our society is. If we really take a serious look at what's going on here, the jails and prisons are a reflection of racism, structural racism in our society, and also class inequity. And we should be doing all we can to alleviate that. Instead, as a society, we're doing tax cuts for rich people, and we're keeping low-income people from voting around the country. So that's the reality of our inequity and our racism in our society. And I think it's time we take a serious look. The way the coronavirus crisis gives us an opportunity, as I said, in, in psychiatry, we, we look to find the opportunity in the trauma, in the wake of trauma. And I think what's happening today is that people are kinder to each other because of this shared crisis we have. You can feel it on the street as you're walking across the street to avoid someone so you can comply with social distancing. There's this shared view that we together are facing a crisis and we're working out the best way we can to do that. People are being released from jail and prison. Not enough by any means. There need to be California, the Department of Corrections announced they would be releasing 3,000 people. They need to release 40 or 50,000 people today, and they're not doing that, but they're releasing some people. Now, the question after the crisis is over is, if it was safe to release these people while the coronavirus was going on, if the safety of the community has not been compromised, and it's not being compromised by those releases, then why do we have so many people in prison in the first place? And what we need to do is decarcerate. We need to get a whole lot of people out of prison. The United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. It's just massive over-incarceration, and we need to decarcerate drastically. If people would look at their situation and see how they've been in denial about the inequities in the criminal justice system, I think there would be a positive uh, support for that idea. You mentioned how kindness is one positive thing coming out of this pandemic. And I've also been very you know, interested in the fact that this has given us all something we can relate to no matter where we are in the world. Everybody is having this shared experience. But I think we could also, outside of this context, realize that we all have a shared experience, whether that is having obstacles in our lives, having important relationships, having issues that perhaps we haven't dealt with, or maybe we have, but either way, those experiences that for all of us have shaped who we are and the way we react to situations and who we are in our partnerships or friendships or even in the workplace, but we all have this shared experience of being shaped by trauma, micro trauma, happy moments, accomplishments. We all have the shared experience of being 
humans who need these close relationships, who, you know, need a sense of purpose and, and agency, and who also need other people to help shape who we are. And so as we get ready to close out the interview, I really wanted to touch on this aspect of how others help give us a sense of self and how much it is that presence or relationships with others, either in the real world or the lack thereof in the sense, in the context of prison, but how important that is in shaping our identity. Well, I think that's all very important thinking. I personally am having this problem in our current existential being in this society. I myself, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm comfortable. I'm not facing unemployment because of this coronavirus epidemic. And my life is pretty good. I am absolutely horrified by what is happening in our prison system, what is happening with homeless people today who are not getting any kind of help. Well, people are trying to help them, but it's not enough social resources. What's happening at the border with immigration, the separation of children from families? I really can't live with that. It is absolutely traumatic for me to be in a society which I thought was democratic with some attempt at equitable distribution of resources, where the truth is so far from that, and so many people are in such miserable poverty and pain. And that creates a, a disjunction in my being. That is that I can't really enjoy the benefits of my success in the world because so many people are suffering. I don't think I'm alone in that perception. I think a whole lot of people feel the same way. Now, during the coronavirus crisis, we look at each other and we say to ourselves, well, I share this crisis with you. You may be a person of another color or another economic class, but we're both facing the coronavirus, which doesn't discriminate. It's going to come and get all of us. So we have a shared problem and a shared a need to share the resources to get through this. I would hope that there's going to be a carryover of that sentiment once the crisis is over. So people will care more about what's happening to the immigrant at the border and the children of the immigrants, what's happening to people in prison, what's happening to the inner city communities that are being destroyed by police vamping on them and arresting young people, and that we will have more empathy as a result of this crisis and be able to fix some of these unbelievable inequities and lack of democracy in our midst. Again, we are social animals, and what we see right now is people making unbelievable efforts to stay connected with each other. I really, as my general advice to the public, I applaud that effort, and I think all of us, one of the biggest dangers is isolation. So one of the things that's happening is that people are looking in on elders who live alone or people with disabilities who live alone and bringing them meals. I think that's a wonderful development in the midst of a very dark crisis. So we should be looking to those improvisations that we're doing in order to help other people 
and therefore make our social relationships more real, more kind. And I think people are doing that, and the trick is going to be to continue that after the crisis is over. Well, thank you so much for your time and for joining us to share your work. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime. If you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism, we'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.